Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, a podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between for one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Massick. Jason, I don't think you should let him get away with it. Yeah, I know, Bill, but I'm kind of addicted to breathing. That's right, listeners. Today we'll be discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1980 high school drama My Bodyguard, starring Chris Makepeace, Adam Baldwin, and Matt Dillon. Directed by Tony Bill, this movie is rated PG with a running time of 1 hour and 36 minutes. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. The comic adventures of a new student at a high school controlled by a teenage gang. From holdups in the hallways to beatings in the bathrooms, this newcomer becomes the gang's latest victim. Devising an ingenious but risky scheme to defend himself, he hires a bodyguard, a sinister student who never talks but has a frightening reputation for violence. With special appearances by Ruth Gordon and Martin Mull, plus an unforgettable fight scene, my Bodyguard is both touching and very funny. Terrorized in the toilets? Chased after school? Shaken down for your lunch money? Get a Bodyguard! My Bodyguard. My Bodyguard. That was what's on the box. How are we doing, Jason? We're doing great tonight. I'm, I'm glad to have seen this finally and uh, ready to talk about it. We're going in the Wayback Machine to 1980. This will be, I guess, quick and brief for you when we talk about earliest memories of the film. <laughs> Why don't you start us off? Bill, it's never quick and brief for me. You know that. I am a long-winded blowhard. So here we go. 
my earliest memories, which are non-existent, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. If we go back to last year and revisit our mini-sode entitled Five Movies from the 80s I'm Embarrassed I've Never Seen, this movie was on my list. I have heard about this movie as far back as I can remember, especially early on in my school career, having been only seven years old when this came out. I would hear about it through the usual playground grapevine, as we often talk about. It always sounded like a fun and funny movie and obviously appropriate for the coming-of-age school-goer. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, it would pop up on cable because I do have vague images of particular scenes in my head. But I never watched the whole movie for whatever reason, and I have no good reason. It's just one that got past me. I've always known that Adam Baldwin was in this film, but that's about it. I don't even know or didn't even know that Matt Dillon had a large role in this until we did our mini-sode last year. You might even say that uh, this film would qualify for our under-the-radar 80s movies because you don't hear about it much anymore. However, it's definitely one that if you mention it within the right age group, everyone says, what? What? You haven't seen my bodyguard? Oh, man, it's great. So that's all I got. What are your earliest memories of my bodyguard? Yeah, so this was a movie I certainly saw on HBO multiple, multiple times. I knew who Chris Makepeace was from Meatballs, which me and my parents had gone seen in the drive-in. So that was one of those, hey, I recognize someone from the movie. I'm going to go watch the movie. I did enjoy it. The things I re just remember just going back, because I have not watched this movie since the 80s. So it was kind of good to go in the Wayback Machine and, and see what I can remember. I certainly remember the scene of Clifford and Linderman, Chris Makepeace and Adam Baldwin, riding around the motorcycle. And they, basically it's that one iconic shot of they're going down the street and one's driving the bike and the other one's sitting in the back and they do the triumphant hands up in the air kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And then you see the other one do it. Yeah, that's isn't that the image on a lot of the VHS boxes or at least one of them, the main VHS it might be. box? Yeah, probably. I remember the whole storyline of one-upping each other with the bodyguards because it first starts off with... Clifford, played by Chris Makepeace, who's being bullied by Moody, who is Matt Dillon. And I didn't remember that at all, to be honest. All I remember was Adam Baldwin and Chris Makepeace in this. And Clifford basically hires Adam Baldwin to be his bodyguard. Right. And now there's peace in the school. But then, of course, Moody hires a bodyguard to take care of the other bodyguard. And there's this one scene where the two bodyguards supposedly face off and um, adam baldwin who is supposed to be chris makepeace's bodyguard just doesn't want to fight this new kid it's not even a kid it's, it almost seems like he's a freaking adult so it's, that's kind of crazy too yeah <laughs> so i do remember that and then of course at the end there's got to be the final fight because you have to have the triumphant moment so i do remember the fight but that was really about it so it was kind of good to go back there and rewatch and going through and like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember that. Oh, yeah, I kind of remember that. And there's definitely some things watching this again I totally forgot about. I'll touch on that a little bit more during our initial thoughts. So that's some of my earliest memories of my bodyguard. Sounds good, Bill Band. Ready to get into those initial thoughts right now? Yeah, I want to hear your initial thoughts watching this for the first time. What did you think of my bodyguard? I'm about to tell you, but as always, some quick initial thoughts and notes on a couple of our main players. Our lead character and protagonist, Clifford Peach, is played by the aforementioned actor Chris Makepeace. What a great name for the actor playing this particular role in the context of this movie. Chris Makepeace in a movie about bullying and fighting. So... From IMDb, Chris Makepeace was born in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. He is an actor 
and assistant director known for meatballs, as Bill had said. This film, My Bodyguard, he had a small role in The Falcon and the Snowman in 1985 and Vamp in 1986. And a little bit of trivia for my MDB in 1981, Makepeace recorded spoken dialogue for Music from the Elder, the Kiss album, with producer Bob Ezrin. But it was not used in the final mix. Plans to turn the album into a feature film never came to fruition. How about that? Uh, we also have, of course, our other lead protagonist, Ricky Linderman, uh, who is the bodyguard, who is played by Adam Baldwin, as we also had mentioned. And from IMDb, Adam Baldwin comes in standing at six foot four. He's a big dude. Adam Baldwin is an American actor who is from Illinois. Uh, he is known for playing Jane Cobb from Firefly and Serenity. He was the voice of Hal Jordan, the Green Lantern, in various DC cartoons and games. And he's also known for playing Animal Mother from Full Metal Jacket. He also acted in Independence Day, The Patriot, Predator 2, and American Underdog. And a little trivia about Adam Baldwin. In case you were wondering, Adam is distantly related to the Baldwin brothers, Alec, Daniel, William, and Stephen who are from Long Island, New York. Adam is from the Chicago area. They share common Baldwin ancestry going back to the 1600s in England. So there you go. Finally, we do have the lead antagonist character, Melvin Moody, played by the wonderful Matt Dillon. But for the sake of time, I'm going to save him for another podcast where he plays like the lead, lead role, as I have no doubt we'll be doing a few films that star Matt Dillon. So getting into my initial thoughts, this movie, I crank it up, Credits roll, picture comes up, and I'm like, wait, nobody told me this was a Chicago movie. What in the holy hell? That's awesome. And I noticed that this film was produced by Don Devlin, which is someone I'll circle back to later. We open the film with the young 15-year-old Clifford Peach riding his bicycle down the Lake Michigan shoreline just along Lakeshore Drive and thus downtown Chicago. Cliff rides his bike into the city and then stops in front of the Ambassador East Hotel and walks his bike inside. We soon learn that young Clifford Peach is living at this hotel where his father is the hotel manager. But just before Clifford walks his bike inside, we see the awning above the entrance, which reads Ambassador East. And on one side, it says pump room. And this is an initial thought because I'd never heard of a pump room. Have you have you before, Bill? I, no. I was like, what what the heck is a pump room? And it turns out it was just the hotel restaurant which had opened in 1938 and closed just recently in 2017, but then reopened again under different names. As of 2022, it is now called the Ambassador Room. But I was like, pump room? Gee, uh, no, it's just the hotel restaurant. Clifford's father in this movie, the hotel manager, Mr. Peach, is played by the great Martin Mull, and he's got an X-Wing fighter model on his desk. Clifford's dad, he's okay in my book. So as the movie begins, as I said, we see Cliff living in like the, I'm assuming, what is a penthouse suite at the hotel with his father, again, the hotel manager, but also his loosey-goosey, always half-inebriated grandmother. Immediately, I was thinking, man, you know, what would life be like living in a hotel? This was just a real serious initial thought I had, or growing up in a hotel. That plot point took me by surprise. It's not what I was expecting at all from this movie. It's an interesting housing situation and circumstance to place your protagonist in and his family. I was like, this is kind of a unique scenario. I was digging it at first. So we get into the story here. That's the first day of sophomore year for Clifford Peach. He's at a new school, as Bill mentioned, 
we get introduced to some of our other uh, characters in this. We get a William Zabka lookalike in 1980 in this movie, in the character of Dubrow, who is one of Melvin Moody's cronies. Uh, we get a teenage Joan Cusack with braces. How about that? And of course, Matt Dillon as the main bully, Melvin Moody. And man, Dylan is just a baby playing a teenager with the voice of a 30 year old. It's weird. It's like he's young, but he has the same voice that we identify with him as an adult actor. I'm like, wait, he looks like he's 12 and he sounds like the Matt Dillon I just saw in something about Mary or something like it's like, what? It's crazy. He's, he's got such an identifiable voice, such a great voice. Anyway, great to see Matt Dillon. We're introduced to who will become one of Cliff's new friends in this movie named Carson, played by Paul Quant. And in my humble opinion, Carson steals every single scene he's in. Absolutely love him. He's that good kid that tries to play by the rules, but inevitably gets pushed around or gets the short end of the stick, kind of that bad luck kid, or at least that's the idea we get. And uh, of course, now the central theme of this movie swirls around bullying. Bullying sucks. What else can you say? We know how it's always been an issue and seemingly ever-present and unfortunate aspect of the real-life coming-of-age story in school. Bullying can affect someone uh, on a deep psychological and emotional level. It can be traumatizing. It can instill fear, terror. It can be inescapable at times when occurring on a daily basis at school. It's an awful thing. While it can very well drive kids to do awful things, as we see to this very day, on a lighter note, in this movie, we get some outstanding 80s hair. Speaking of Melvin Moody's crony Dubrow and a Joan Cusack, who plays the character named Shelley, they are rocking some serious heads of 80s lettuce in this movie. Love the 80s hair in this movie. Love the fact that Ricky Linderman, my bodyguard, Adam Baldwin, is like, they make him look like he's two feet taller than everybody else in this movie. They really make him look like a giant. No one else comes close to him in height. And I have to say, man, Clifford, our protagonist, man, this kid at 15 years old, he's got balls. Got to give it to him. This was an initial thought. He really didn't give in to Melvin Moody much at all. Don't know if I would have had that fortitude. So how do I feel about this movie today? Uh, you know what, Bill Bant, uh, to be completely transparent, and I, I just want to be honest with you, Bill, a uh, little bit of an after-school special feel here for me. It has the building blocks of something much deeper, something that could have had a lot more layers and levels, but it just scratches the surface for me. But I get it. If I had seen this film when I was a kid, I absolutely no doubt it would have, let's just say this, it would have had an impact. Although, thankfully, I was not bullied as a kid. I could still find things to relate to and characters to root for. But watching this as an adult with a critical eye, I had two main issues. Our protagonist, Cliff Peach, doesn't really have much of an arc. He's sticking up for himself right from the beginning. He never really learns, like, how to defend himself in a fight. Not really. And I'm not sure what he learned from all this. And my second issue is that the B and or C stories in this don't work. They're just kind of confusing as to why they even exist in a movie that's only an hour and a half. The B story being the threat of this assistant hotel manager, Mr. Griffith, constantly looming and threatening to have Mr. Peach fired. And then there's like a C story of the relationships between Clifford and his father and the quirky drunken grandmother. And they're comedic at times. They serve to, you know, kind of as a light flavor in this movie, but they don't really go anywhere and serve almost no purpose. I'll say this. The part of the A story that works for me is the friendship between Clifford and Ricky, uh, his pseudo bodyguard. I do like their dynamic. Although the acting in this movie is pretty raw, there are some nice natural moments. 
I think Dylan is pretty solid, man, as our main bully. He's a total dick. <laughs> Love his delivery of one of his first lines after Clifford talks back to him in class and he says, you and me, we're going to have a little talk after school. Right? Right? Huh? Man, he gets pretty dark. But uh, that's all I got for initial thoughts. How about you, Bill Bant? Yeah, I'm going to piggyback off a little bit what you said about the storylines because watching this movie now, I forgot everything about the motel. That was like watching it all for the first time. I don't remember any of this. I don't remember Martin Mole was in this. I was so happy, though, to see Ruth Gordon, though. Sure. I love Ruth Gordon. Oscar winner for Rosemary's Baby and the cult classic Harold and Maud. She was in the Any Which Way But Loose films with Clint Eastwood. To me, she's just the ultimate grandmom. Just live your life. I don't give a crap about anything. She was cracking me up. And as much as I felt the hotel storyline was unnecessary, I still enjoyed her. We kind of touched about this a little bit about Willow. We were talking about the brownies and we we're like, we just didn't need the brownies in there. But the difference was, yeah, we don't need the motel story as much in here. But I still enjoyed every time Ruth Gordon was on screen. There's just something about it that I just love. Agreed. Good call. I think the one thing that kind of surprised me watching the movie is the fact that they were in their sophomore year of high school and Moody already runs things, which basically says he established such dominance his freshman year that by sophomore year, everybody's afraid of him. You would think at a high school, you have juniors and seniors. So you'd really think it's a junior at the end of the year or a senior that's really calling all the shots here. So that was kind of surprising. What is it that he did his first year of school that even when Moody walks into the classroom the first time, even the teacher's just like, oh, I'm stuck with this kid. She seemed to take it worse than the other kids in the class. <laughs> yeah, That was kind of interesting because usually when you see these movies, it's not a student in a lower grade that runs the school. I totally forgot Matt Tillon was in this movie. I didn't remember that that was him at all. So that was kind of surprising, and that was kind of cool to watch. Because, I mean, this is definitely, I think, maybe his third credit. Mm -hmm. And just watching this movie, and it was a whole bunch of, hey, it's that actor. I mean, there were so many times it's like, holy shit, this person's in this movie? That's one of these things I love about going back to see it, an old movie like that that I haven't seen in a long time. Yeah. And just finding all these cameos or people who played main roles, and you just totally forgot about it. So it was kind of fun. And then I was just laughing as we were talking about this before the show because we do our Hey, It's That Actor segment. And I'm sure we both overthinked it so much that we're probably going to end up with the same person, even though there's at least 10 people in here that we can say it's either their first movie or it's someone that's in it before they, they made it big. So I really like that. And there's so many people in this movie, too, even if you look through the cast. This is the only movie that they did that was kind of surprising. And I was just going through it and I'm like, Wow, mm -hmm. this is their only credit. I think even half of the Moody Gang, this is the only movie that, that they did. So that was kind of surprising, too. I enjoyed watching it again. I, I had a fun time with it. But I think what you said is right, too. I think if you watched it at a certain age, you would totally fall in love with this movie. So it's kind of interesting yep. to see with you being a little bit older how it was going to play out. That was my initial thoughts of My Bodyguard. Bill Bant, you make some great points. I hope I remember to expound on some of them because there's no question that, one, this was still an enjoyable watch. So don't get me wrong. It's not that I disliked this movie. I just thought that it missed some bets, as my acting instructor used to say. 
And that's a great point about Matt Dillon's uh, antagonist, Melvin Moody, the bully, being a sophomore and being so dominant at an early stage in his high school career, which is very unusual. And the only way I could see that happening maybe is if he inherited it. Let's say his he had an older brother, brother yeah. that was either a senior or had just graduated or something along those lines. And then he kind of was the next in line to be the cock of the walk kind of, I run things now. But otherwise, yeah, it's strange as a sophomore to have that kind of power over everyone. And regarding the performances, it's interesting because, yeah, there's so many stars in this or soon to be stars. And then I believe our lead actor in Chris Makepeace, in my humble opinion, he's the most natural and or mature actor of the bunch. The rest of them are great, including Matt Dillon, but they're very raw. They're very raw, and Adam Baldwin included. They have really strong moments, and then others, you're like, oh, it's a young actor. He or she is a young actor. Although Joan Cusack, she's still great. She's just great. She's just an all-time natural. But Chris Makepeace is really strong and then doesn't do a, a whole lot after this. I didn't do a deep, deep dive on his filmography, but I thought he was pretty, pretty darn good in this. Like, he was very believable. So, yeah, great, great initial thoughts, man. So we'll, we'll get into it further here. So let's move on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some of our favorite scenes and moments from My Bodyguard? All right. I'm going to go with my moment number one first, and I'm calling it Meeting Carson. <laughs> I just love this character. I love, uh, how do you say his name, Paul Quant? I think that's right. The actor that plays Carson. So it's Clifford's first day as a sophomore at the new school, and he walks into his English class and struggles to find an open seat, but finally lands next to Carson, the freckled little kid with the funny voice. And almost immediately, we are endeared to the quirky, goofy Carson because his first line to Clifford is, feel under the desk. You got gum under there dating back to the Neanderthal times. The gum's not the worst. It's the boogers that freak me out. You can get hepatitis from the fresh ones. I can't even say it with a straight face. Immediately, I'm like, this kid's awesome. You spoke of, I think it's Mrs. Jump, the English teacher. Some of the character names are just great. Anyway, Mrs. Jump, the teacher, you said, you know, how she reacts when Melvin Moody comes into the class and just kind of strutting his stuff, right? But of course, Carson has such a great, <laughs> he puts his hand over his face. Oh, no, here's the bully. He kind of looks at him through his fingers. Love it. I love Carson, but I love this initial meeting between Carson and Clifford. So that was my first favorite moment. And it's funny, too. That was his only movie role. So I oh, man. I was surprised. Yeah. Yeah, I felt bad for him. He's definitely a Debbie Downer. Everything has some negativity to it throughout the whole movie. <laughs> well, he has two moments when he does the finger to Moody, which I'm going to get into in, in a couple. That's of a seconds. great moment. I almost put it in there. That deserves a great moment nod. Yeah. And then uh, I think something at the end, he kind of does something too. But yeah, man, he's one of those friends. Nothing good ever happens. I feel bad for him. Rough life. I, I wanted to know what happened to Carson later on, what he ended up doing. I really did. It's kind of funny. <laughs> what do you have for your first favorite moment and or scene? So for my first favorite scene... It's Clifford gets his revenge. So we got to gotta go through a little bit of story here. So Clifford's starting at a new school. And what you mentioned is he meets Carson. That's his first day. And, and Moody comes in. And Clifford has no idea that Moody is basically the school bully for the sophomore class, at least. We don't know how far this goes. And Clifford, not knowing this, kind of says some stuff. And, of course, Moody doesn't take kind to it. 
So now Clifford is on Moody's radar. And after school, they drag Clifford into the bathroom and Moody gives him this whole story about protection and he owes him a buck a day if he wants to be protected from this other classmate called Linderman. And they're not really protecting anyone from Linderman. They're basically protecting them from Moody and his gang. Right. Clifford's not going to pay. He's not going to put up with this. So Moody and his friends are basically making Clifford pay over and over again. He's in the cafeteria with his food. He gets tripped. He goes to gym class. And uh, when he goes back to find his clothes, they're covered in garbage. So... Clifford's gotten to the point where enough is enough. They do the old throw him in the locker bit. Yes, they do. And it gets to the point where Clifford tries to befriend this Linderman who, you know, Moody says is supposedly they're protecting them from and tries to get Linderman to be his bodyguard for protection. And of course, Linderman wants to have nothing to do with this whatsoever. Linderman is... One of those kids where everybody in the school has a story about him, and each story is more outrageous about the other. He shot someone, he attacked a teacher, beat up some cops, et cetera, et cetera. So it just, it gets crazy. But Clifford and Linderman eventually form a friendship, and Linderman agrees to be Clifford's bodyguard. So it sets up the scene where there's a local hangout after school and half the school's in there and they're lunch and snacks and video games, just your typical 80s kind of hangout. And we see Clifford coming in, strutting his stuff, and he sees Moody and his gang sitting there at a table eating and Clifford walks up to them. And on their table is the two old style condiment squeezies and he grabs a ketchup and the mustard and literally shoots it in everyone's face and then takes a drink and pours it on Moody and then just takes off. And you're just like, holy yeah. shit, what is this kid yeah, going to do? Pretty ballsy. Yeah. Very ballsy. So he runs across the street. All his traffic's coming by. Moody and this guy comes out. They supposedly corner him in an alleyway and you're like, well, Clifford, you're done. You're about to get your ass kicked. And right before he's about to, here comes Linderman. And he steps up and Clifford says, well, guys, I want you to meet my bodyguard, which is, of course, Linderman. And Moody wants to fight. But Moody's cronies are like, yeah, no way. We're not going to fight him whatsoever. And they take off, leaving Moody by himself. And now at this point, the rest of the school has come out because they wanted to see what the hell was going to happen to Clifford. And now that they're seeing Clifford has the upper hand, now the school's all happy because half the school is paying Moody and his gang a dollar a day. And they realize we don't have to do this anymore, thanks to Clifford and the bodyguard. So it's a big triumphant moment. And at the very end, Carson comes up to Moody and says, hey, you owe me a year's worth of lunch money. And then gives him the finger, yeah. which I'm still like, man, that's still a little shaky to do at this point. This is just started. Right. <laughs> and then everyone walks off. So then you think, all right, so Clifford and Linderman have formed this friendship, but it's not really quite what it seems. Linderman was just kind of doing him solid, and that was it. And we'll talk about it a little bit more in the rest of the story. But yeah, that was my favorite moments. Clifford getting back at Moody and his gang for all the shit they've been pulling on him so far throughout the year. No doubt about it. Great scene. I love the setting. I love what happens and how it plays out. Some nice acting moments. We always love to see a bully get his comeuppance or get to, you know, we love to see him be put in his place. And that certainly happens in this sequence. This is an issue that I'll probably delve into a little bit more later, but I can bring it up now is with 
Clifford because although I love the fact that he's so strong and that he stands up to the bullet because he really does have some grande cojones or cojones grandes and uh, going into the cafe, the little local shop where the kids eat and just to grab the squirt bottles. And I mean, he goes right at the bullies. Oh, yeah. He goes right at them. I mean, he walks up and he's looking through the window, sees them, spots them, marks them, has a smile on his face and goes in and takes care of business and then walks out. He casually walks out. And by the way, some great overhead shots of like street stuff here. It's very on location Chicago kind of stuff. There's some moments I'm like, oh, hey, Italian village. I've eaten there. That's cool. Uh, so I always like seeing the city, but it's kind of gritty. It's cool. And then the bullies are running across and then he looks back and then only then does he run across the street into the alley. And just in case for any of the audience listening that has not seen this movie to provide the visual, Ricky Linderman, played by Adam Baldwin, is a big dude. He's six foot four, six foot five in real life. He's wearing like kind of like an army army jacket, yeah. Coat, like green army jacket with a white t-shirt underneath. He's got that 80s kind of curly big fluffy hair and he just looks like a rough dude. You would never mess with him. And a lot of this which I thought about is intimidation. A lot of bullying is just simply intimidation. And if anything, Ricky Linderman is intimidating. So Whenever he's on screen and he's purposefully made to look much larger than life and larger than anyone else, he's intimidating. So that moment, yeah, when he steps up to in defense of Cliff and then <laughs> Moody is looking to his own thugs and being like, come on, guys, if we all join together, we can take him. And they all one by one are like, no, nope, good luck, man. I'm out. And Moody's left by himself. And Matt Dillon's got that great, like, defeated look on his face, like, well, I'm screwed. I can't take this guy on by myself. And uh, then the the good guys win the day here. The uh, underdogs get the best of Moody in that situation. But it's fun to watch. Is this it? Movie's over. We're good. The, yep. Ta-da. <laughs> <the guys won. laughs> good scene, Bill. Um, so what do you have now? Uh, so for my favorite scene, number one, I'm going to take it back a bit. And I'm just going to keep focusing on Carson, my guy. And I call this Carson giving Clifford the do's and don'ts on how to avoid getting picked on by Melvin Moody and is what I'm calling the bully mafia. I love this because whenever you're in a new environment, especially as a kid, without any friends, it's good to meet a local that can tell you the ins and outs and what to do and what to look out for, and where to go and how to get around. And that's Carson. So Cliff and Carson seem to, this is still first day of school. Cliff and Carson seem to be in a science or chemistry class. And Carson tells him, you know, it was pretty dumb what you said to Moody this morning because earlier Cliff had kind of backtalked Moody. And Carson's like, I hope you get away with it. Just don't let him catch you in the halls alone or on the stairs either, or especially in the bathrooms. I never go to the bathroom here if I can help it. I just hold it in. Stay away from liquids. <laughs> it's funny. But it's not funny because that's something that kids probably do to avoid being bullied. And he goes on to say, you know, they say one kid got thrown out of a window. He's a vegetable now. And my personal favorite. And there's this other guy had his eye kicked out. Total gross out. Never found the eyeball either. <laughs> I'm like laughing. But the thing is, this scene is somewhat comical, but because of Paul Quant's deadpan delivery as Carson. But if you watch this scene out of context, which I did because I went back to write down these quotes because these lines were really funny to me when I was watching the movie straight through. But taking it out of context and just watching the scene, it's a little scary. It's like, oh man, this poor kid's dealing with some real shit 
from this bully, Melvin Moody. Like he's going through it. And then I'm just feeling so sympathetic for Carson. So yeah, my first favorite scene there. Love me some Carson. Yeah, you are a big time Carson fan. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just going to do a quick moment. I didn't initially have this on my list, but it just kind of ties into the first scene I talked about. And it kind of ties into what you just talked about with the warnings. Don't have Moody catch you in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And after Clifford's first day, he gets dragged into the bathroom and Moody's explaining the services that they provide at the school as a protection. At the same time, they're making all these toilet paper wads and throwing them around the bathroom. Right. And it's a second wand that Moody picks up and throws it at Clifford's head. And Clifford, he doesn't move. He doesn't flinch. And it right. literally just yeah. like grazes his head and hits the wall behind him. And that's why I was kind of like, wow. Even as an adult, I think I still would have ducked. Oh, All yeah. Right, this kid's got some cojones. Moody might have met his match here. So it was just a quick moment that just kind of surprised me. I didn't remember that at all. That scene is very tense because he gets dragged in. And you think he's going to get his ass kicked, but he doesn't. Because right. Moody's like, oh, shake your hand. Here, shake my friend's hand. Shake your... And you're just waiting for them to twist his arm and throw him in a toilet. And it doesn't happen. Moody's, in a way, trying to win him over just to get the money. But then once he realizes he's not going to get the money, now it's strong arm tactic time. Absolutely, 100%. It's a great moment, and I'm glad you mentioned it because it falls right in the middle of my next favorite scene, which you've pretty much outlined. So Sorry. It's awesome. No, not at all. Don't apologize. It's I chose the scene because I thought it was a little upsetting and... Pretty well done and well performed by all involved, especially, of course, Matt Dillon and Chris Makepeace. This is Clifford's first meeting with Moody and, again, what I'm calling the bully mafia in the bathroom. And I love the idea that these bullies aren't just your typical bullies that are picking on the weaklings and stealing their lunch money, but they're actually taking it as protection money like the mafia would do. That's what the mafia does. They charge you for their protection as if they will step in if someone else comes after you. That's what they'll do. But of course, we know that they're actually just protecting you from themselves. And toward the end of the school day, we get the sense that Clifford is doing his best to avoid leaving before his ride shows up. And by the way, he has his own driver from the hotel who also doubles as the bellhop. Cool. Okay. Nice. Soon, Clifford knows that the car is waiting for him outside. He hears the horn honking. So he leaves the library, but is soon intercepted by Moody's thugs in the hallway, and they escort him into the bathroom, where Moody is already in the process. He's in mid-process of extorting lunch money from another student. And after he sends that student on his way, Moody starts in with Clifford. And I think there's some good writing, actually, in here. And he's using this kind of subtle sly uh, intimidation just by saying that, you know, he wants to be friends, but he's really just kind of forcing him to shake hands and share a little bit about his background. Dylan is pretty slimy and slick with his lines. And he says, hey, listen, pal, it's obvious you got the bread. You know, the question is, you got sense? Serious, man. You got sense? Huh? Stuff like that. And he says, you go to a school like this and you need you'll need a bodyguard. Because it's nice here because he lies, like you said, Bill, that the actual threat here is the other, you know, this Linderman character, as we know, the, the big uh, Adam Baldwin, who supposedly killed a kid by blowing his brains out. And in the meantime, in the background, speaking of intimidation, Dubrow, one of the other punks, is rolling up the pieces of toilet paper 
and soaking them in water from the bathroom sink, in essence, making these large tennis ball sized spit wads, which he then hands to Moody, who then in turn is throwing them at Cliff's head while he's backed up against a wall. And all the while, Melvin Moody is explaining how the system works that Cliff needs to pay him protection money by giving him a dollar a day. Moody goes on to fill a plastic cup with toilet water and is about to force Cliff to drink it before Cliff throws it back into his face, which then starts the chase scene through the school. But it's a solid scene with Matt Dillon some serious flexing. He's clearly a real piece of work, man, used to getting what he wants. The, the line, for instance, so for that same 60 cents, we're talking two milks. You got us almost paid for. Now all else is you got to do is scrape up another 40. And then he whips another TP ball at his head. You know, and it's just, it's kind of brutal. But I, you made a great point, Bill, that Cliff really does stand up for himself. And he's unusually strong in these scenes, uh, standing up to the bullies. It's a pretty solid scene, kind of laying out really who the bad guys are in this movie. Yeah, it's a good scene too. And I should have had that probably in one of my favorite scenes, but. I didn't, and I think between the two of us, we pretty much covered everything in it. Yeah. When you go back to talk about the driver, when I watched the trailer before I watched the movie, and there's a scene in the trailer where Clifford makes it into the car, and they drive away, and the driver asks Clifford, who are they? And he's like, oh, kids that were trying to kill me? I forgot Martin Mull was in the movie, and I thought that was his dad. And then I was like, oh, wait, oh. Martin Mull's his dad. Okay. <laughs> I got you. And that shows That's how much of, I forgot about this movie going in to watch it again. Yeah, but for my next favorite scene, it's actually after the scene you just talked about. Mm -hmm. Clifford finishes first day of school. He's back at the hotel with his grandma and his dad shows up and Clifford has like this uh, telescope that he's looking through. You think he's using it to look at the stars, but find out that's not what they're using it for. But then dad comes up and says, I heard what happened to your first day of school. I called the school. Um, they're going to take care of things. And you know right away as a kid, you're like, oh, crap, my parents called the school. Now I'm going to get my ass kicked so bad. And Clifford's a little bit nervous about it. But then there's just kind of little funny moments between him and his dad because his dad says that he's 14. And Clifford's like, no, I'm 15. And his dad's like, oh, my God, I can't believe I don't even remember that. And I should know that. And I'm your dad because all I ever do is 24-7 at this hotel and then that really makes you think about, holy crap, yeah, they live there. So he must really work there 24-7. I'm sure that's part of the package of being part of the, the room. And then the grandma is talking about, well, if those kids bother you, you just kick them in the gonads and they'll go down. And, and you know, because she's mm -hmm. just free spirit and she just says whatever the hell she wants. And then there's a moment where you realize then, because the dad... Martin Mull looks through the telescope and says, oh, it's such and such in room, whatever. So they've basically been using the telescope to spy on the neighboring buildings. And it's a routine where they know certain rooms at certain times have certain people who are doing certain things. And yeah, it's people, yeah. Tom, you shouldn't do that. It's very illegal. And of course... Clifford wants to look because he wants to see because he knows who the girl is in that room. And he's probably seen her before because he's meant to sound like the red sweater. And it's like no sweater today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the dad just makes a joke of, oh, come on, I, I need this. Because at this point, you know, there's no mom slash wife involved, but you don't know the story behind it. So, you know, if they're divorced, but you do find right. out that eventually she passes away. So it's one of those scenes that's kind of funny, but at the same time, what they're doing is really, really wrong. But I just liked it because it, I think it's 
a tender moment between the three of them. Just it kind of shows how the family dynamic works in that right. moment, which I kind of liked. Even though, like I said, you could have cut all this stuff out and didn't need it, but I did like that part. Uh, it's interesting. I, I understand your perspective on that, and I do agree that the dynamic between the three of them the the son, the father, and the grandmother is pretty solid. They feel like they are connected as a family. They get along. They understand each other's quirks, etc. But it is I'm a little conflicted about that scene because it is a little strange that they are there. The father and son are bonding over the peeping Tom situation. It is a little comical. Definitely, the lines are kind of funny. I had a I actually did have this in my complaints though that Martin Mall as the dad doesn't know that his own son is 15 years old. I understand that he works. We're supposed to understand that he, that's how much he works. But if they're living together in the same, it just seemed a little far-fetched that he wouldn't know his own son's birthday. And I'm like, so is the situation thus that Martin Mull is basically an absentee father while at the same time living in the same hotel room with his son? Which is kind of interesting, but I wish then they would have delved into that a little bit more as to Clifford's own backstory and why he is the way he is as a 15-year-old kid dealing with this family scenario, which is a bit dysfunctional. It, and like really kind of explore that a little bit as to why he may feel the need to stand up to bullies or not or whatever. But I may, again, get into that a little bit more. Well, they touch on a little bit in the beginning when Clifford goes to the hotel and he mm -hmm. sees the hostess and the hostess knows who, of course, Clifford is. And he's going to sit and his dad's going to have dinner with him. And then, of course, something happens and he's like, all right, go eat dinner. Hopefully I'll get back in time for us to at least sit down and eat a little bit. And Clifford doesn't even blink an eye about it. It's just something that just seems to constantly happen. So I think he accepts what his dad needs to do in order for them to get by. But I must think maybe the 14 thing was just a little joking, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I, th I think he knows he's 15. It's maybe just one of those mental slip-ups and then just sure. blames it on. 24 hours at a hotel must be incredibly stressful. So oh, yeah. you just have the mental lapses that go with it. Absolutely. And as always, it's open to interpretation. So I appreciate your perspective on that and your opinion on that. And I might be reading into some of this a little bit too much or wanting a little too much for what this movie is supposed to be or whatever the intention is behind the message in this movie. But I just... If you're going to have this stuff with the family, I was just looking for more layers. That's all. It's still a fun scene in, in certain moments, so I appreciate it. Uh, for my next favorite moment, my favorite moment number two, I'm calling it Linderman's introduction slash Carson's moment. And this is taking it back a bit. Uh, the Ricky Linderman character we've all been hearing about finally shows up on the second day of school, walking in on the middle of English class. And Mrs. Jump tells him to find a seat. And I just love this moment. I'll make it real quick. As Carson whispers to Cliff, that's Linderman. That's the man, the myth, the legend. The kids go silent and Linderman is a hulking presence. He hands Mrs. Jump his pass. And Carson has his eyes closed with his hand on his head. Just going, please, God, let him sit up front, please. Not in back of me. Not in back of me. I help. I'll have a heart attack, I swear to God. I just love that line. I'll have a heart attack, I swear to God. And of course, Linderman sits right behind him. Just love that moment. 
I laughed out loud pretty damn hard when Carson was like, not in back of me, not in back of me. I have a heart attack. I thought it was hilarious. Oh, you're cracking me up with all this Carson stuff. It's hilarious. I love that kid. That's so funny. And he did nothing else. That's what's just so amazing about it. I yeah. thought for sure. I'm like, oh, he must have done like a couple other movies. I just don't remember. And yeah, nothing. I'll jump to my third and final scene. And it's the end of the movie. It's the big fight. Sure. Of course. I enjoyed it just because. All right. Let me just set up the scene. So we established earlier that Clifford and Lindemann have kind of formed a bond and mm-hmm. Linderman is Clifford's bodyguard. And this has pretty much destroyed Moody's business. And now Moody's hired a bodyguard, this kid, Mike. And like I said earlier, Mike looks like he's in his early 20s. And the first time oh, we meet least. Mike yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. is at the park. And of course, he approaches Linderman and wants to fight. And Linderman wants to have nothing to do with it. And Mike pretty much ends up embarrassing Linderman and the Linderman kind of takes off and um, you find out that Linderman has been building this motorcycle and his motorcycle gets dumped into the lake at this park. So we get to the end of the movie. Linderman disappeared for a while and and Clifford's worried because he doesn't know what's happened to Linderman because he has also found out this time that, you know, one of the rumors that went around is that Linderman killed his brother, but then Clifford finds out that His brother accidentally shot himself. And then you find out that Linderman didn't necessarily kill his brother, but he was there when his brother got shot. The gun accidentally went off and his brother died. Right. This is what's really been messing Linderman up and and kind of makes him who he is. So Clifford hasn't seen Linderman in a couple of days and he's back at the park. And now he sees that Linderman has fished out his motorcycle and he's taking it back. And Clifford wants to go talk to him just to see how he can help him. And unfortunately, Moody and Mike are there at the park. And Moody goes up to Linderman and says, oh, you got my bike. Once again, Linderman is not doing anything. He's just kind of staring Moody down because here comes Mike. And Mike tells Linderman, hey, give your bike back to my friend. And it gets to the point where Linderman has had enough. And now he fights Mike. So him and Mike are going at it. And... It's back and forth. And I think what I liked about the fight is it really kind of felt like a school fight. You know, it's not one of those. You kind of go around in circles in your boxing. They're tussling on the ground. They're throwing punches. They're kicking. Mm-hmm. Whatever you can to get the upper hand. And Moody's watching the fight along with Clifford. And Moody realizes Mike's starting to lose. So Moody jumps into the fight. So now it's two against one. Of course, Clifford's not happy about this. And Clifford gets into the fight, and he almost chokes out Moody. Yeah. Yeah. And at this point, Linderman's gotten the upper hand, and he basically knocks Mike out. So instead of Linderman going to help Clifford with Moody, Linderman's just letting Clifford fight. He's he's basically letting Clifford show that he can protect himself. Mm -hmm. And they're going around and fighting, and they're they're trading blows. And Moody's kind of getting the upper hand and and Linderman just keeps picking Clifford back up. He's like, hey, you can do this. Get back in there. Put your guard up a little bit. Or at one point, he says, just go for the nose. Just break his nose. punch him in the nose. So they tussle and they tussle. And Clifford gets the punch in, breaks Moody's nose. Moody goes down. He's upset his nose broken. (laughs) Fight is over. Clifford and Linderman save the day. Linderman gets his bike back and they're pushing it off through the park. 
And then Linderman kind of jokes about hiring Clifford as his bodyguard. And he basically reiterates everything that Clifford had said to Linderman earlier on in the movie. Like, hey, I'll pay you this amount of money. I'll help you do your homework. I'm pretty smart, blah, 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 blah. And they walk off, credits roll, end of movie. But I just, yeah, I just liked it felt like more like a real kind of fight. Yeah, there was some little hokey stuff to it because you got kids fighting. I mean, how much can you really choreograph that kind of stuff and make it look real? But it right. just reminded me of like, oh, yeah, that's kind of how I remember fights going down when, when I was a kid in school. I, I liked it. I mean, you knew it was yeah, going to happen. Absolutely. But I liked how it played right. out. Oh, sure. I think that's what you're – it's building up to the entire time. It's like 3 o'clock high. It's inevitable. We have to see the fight. And I think it's a pretty good payoff. I agree that some of it, you know, the choreography isn't great. There's some, it's not tense as you might say, but I think it's pretty still, still uh, pretty much still a knockdown drag out type of fight. And it's pretty raw. Uh, there's a couple things I like about it. And the one being the fact that uh, this takes care of my favorite moment. Number three, which I was going to mention real quickly is that early in the film, I thought this was smart when, you say we have two bodyguards facing off because obviously Cliff has employed Ricky Linderman as his bodyguard. And then Melvin Moody goes and somehow goes and rec- I don't know where he goes to get his bodyguard, but he goes and finds this 20 something who looks like he's going on 30 something bodyguard named Mike. And when Mike confronts Ricky, Ricky as Cliff's bodyguard won't fight. I thought that was a good choice, like because we're expecting this is it. We're going to see Ricky fight. Right. We're going to see the six foot four guy show everybody what he's got. And he's going to be this one bad, tough mother effer. And he won't fight. He takes a beating from the other bodyguard, Mike. And it's like, oh, this is interesting. This is some good conflict. Why is he holding back? Can he fight? Is he choosing not to fight? And the smart thing about that choice is that it makes us want to know more about Ricky. What is his deal? So it's a moment that's tough to watch, but it's it's that good kind of uncomfortable because it's a good storytelling choice. And then, of course, it pays off in the end when we finally do get the fight between Ricky and Mike, like you just laid out so well, Bill Bant. And we're like, oh, shit, Ricky's going to let loose now, finally. And he does, in a way... But even one of my favorite moments within that final fight sequence is that they're exchanging blows. It's not one-sided. It's not as if Ricky's really kicking Mike's butt from the get. It's kind of even, and it's going back and forth. And then when I think Ricky gets like thrown against a tree at one point and hits his head, and he reaches back, and he's, oh, yeah. he's bleeding from his head. And when he looks at the blood on his hand, I believe that is when he really is triggered and he really goes off because it reminds him of what happened with his younger brother who died as the result of a gunshot wound at nine years old and did not die right off the bat and was bleeding from the head. And when now Ricky is bleeding from his own head, it recalls that situation and that traumatic event. And then he loses his shit and kicks the crap out of Mike. You know, it's. I thought that was a smart thing to do in that final fight scene. And it's just great to see the bullies get their asses kicked. Oh, yeah. Always good. So good stuff, man. I appreciate the final fight sequence. And my favorite and final scene, I should say, was just before that final fight. And I'm just calling it Ricky tells Clifford the truth about what happened to his little brother. 
And it's pretty tough because, like I said, after the one-sided fight where uh, Moody's bodyguard Mike beats up Ricky, Ricky appears on Cliff's penthouse hotel room balcony and asks for money. He's just bummed out and looking to escape, and Cliff can only give him six bucks. So Ricky leaves, going down the escape ladder. Cliff follows him once again in this movie. Cliff is following him the whole movie, it seems. So Cliff follows him down the escape ladder and tries to catch up to him, basically chasing him down into the train station and confronting Ricky with what he believes to be the truth. Clifford thinks that Ricky wouldn't fight previously because he blames himself for the death of his own little brother and has been traumatized by this and is either now anti-violence or afraid of violence or afraid of the violence he could afflict on another. But Ricky has had enough with hiding the real truth. Bill alluded to this earlier. Ricky admits that he says he killed his little brother, that he was the one that went into his dad's closet and took out his dad's gun to show it off like a damn fool. And when his little brother went to grab it, he wouldn't let him take it, and the gun went off, shooting his brother in the head. But it didn't kill him outright. His little brother lived long enough to tell him that he, w- that he, Ricky, would have to take the blame for this when their dad came home. But then, of course, his little brother dies, and Ricky lies about it. He puts the gun in his brother's hand and tells everyone that he found him that way, that his little brother had accidentally shot himself. So that's heavy, man. That's some heavy stuff. It's brutal. That's a brutal story. It is. And stuff like that has happened. You know, it's just, it's a tough thing, especially nowadays when people, you just hear about it. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And it it happens, unfortunately. But in this moment, it's tough. And I think Adam Baldwin does a, a pretty good job overall with the delivery of this monologue. He's tearing up. I mean, he's crying. And ending, especially, I think it's pretty poignant at the end of the monologue at the end of the scene when Clifford is trying to tell Ricky that it, he didn't do it intentionally. It wasn't his fault. Uh, it was an accident. He didn't mean for it to happen. And Ricky ends the scene by saying, I'm sorry, Clifford. I let everybody down. It's the way I am. And then he gets on the train and leaves. That's great stuff to me. Like that's a good line. And I think that's good writing. That's good character stuff. And it's like, Oh man. Yeah. Ricky's, He's dealing with a lot here. I mean, it's pretty raw. It's uncomfortable, but I thought it was a good scene. Yeah, I agree. I thought that was a good scene too. And it is. You have kind of have back-to-back uncomfortable with Mike basically taking it to Linderman and him not doing anything. You're just like, just punch him. Just punch him and not doing it and then finding out why. That's got to suck. You know, it's it. You know what it makes me think of is other films that have those uncomfortable moments. Like some of your favorite movies that you watch time and time again, but a lot of times you'll just fast forward to that one scene. But the scene is absolutely necessary in the storytelling in order to get your characters where they need to be on their journey and their arc, et cetera, in their character growth, development, maturation, whatever word you want to use. But for instance, like this is not the greatest comp, but it's like watching Top Gun, which is just like candy right it's just bitter you know it's it's really sweet but you're just like oh i'm just gonna fat i know yeah the goose goose dies here i'm just gonna fast forward to this <laughs> good stuff right you know because it's just uncomfortable this see this part sucks yeah but it's necessary for for maverick to get where he needs to be in the movie you know what i mean yeah there's a lot of movies like that and this movie has two of those scenes you nailed it yeah with the first fight with the other bodyguard and uh and then that scene there's just it's uncomfortable but necessary 
Yeah, because that's the thing, too. Just wanted to go back with Linderman because, like I said, you hear all these stories and these rumors about him. And he never, until he fights Mike, he never lays a hand on anyone. He never intimidates, intentionally intimidates anyone else in the school. He just kind of walks around and everybody just keeps away from him. When he goes to sit down for lunch, no one comes to his table. So it's just the the tall tales that have been told about him that make this character larger than life. But he does nothing to ever instigate or fuel into these rumors except for the fact that he's just a loner and just keeps to himself. Yeah. It's a good character. It's a good it's a good idea for a character for this movie. I mean, I I really like that idea of Ricky Linderman in this movie. Yeah. All right. Anything else for scenes or moments? That was it for me. Hey, let's take a short break to hear from our friends over at Watch This Tonight podcast. Tell me if this has ever happened to you. It's about nine o'clock at night. You finished your day. Kids are asleep, had dinner, took the dog for a walk. You got a little bit of time to just chill out and watch something good on TV. And you spend 25 minutes going between all the different streaming platforms, Netflix, Paramount+, Plus, Apple+, Plus, Amazon, and you don't know what to watch. And finally, at the end, you give up and you just put on something you watched already. If this has happened to you and you just can never find that good thing to watch when you want to, then I've created a show just for you. It's called Watch This Tonight. I'm Dan Benamore. I've been a film critic, a film producer, and now I'm a podcast producer. And when you're in that moment, when you're staring at your different streaming platforms and you don't know what to watch and you want to make sure you watch something good, just look up Watch This Tonight anywhere you listen to podcasts. Each episode is only about 10 minutes, and each episode gives you a curated selection for the best in streaming. Look for Watch This Tonight anywhere you listen to podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Now back to our show. All right, so let's move on to Swiss cheese and complaint department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. Yes, if it doesn't fall under Swiss cheese, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. All right, Jason, watching it for the first time, what are, what are some of your Swiss cheese or complaints about my bodyguard? 
Well, I'm going to get into some of the stuff I alluded to earlier. And first of all, one of my main complaints is with Clifford's arc. Because as much as I respect the fact that Clifford has the mental and emotional fortitude to stand up to Melvin Moody and the Bully Mafia from the get, stronger than I would ever be. And I think it's an interesting choice, but unfortunately to start there, he does not have much of an arc. I would understand if you start his character there and he's standing up to the bullies, but then at some point is either worn down or at some point he crumbles, but he never breaks. He's pretty steady throughout. So where does he go from there? And it's kind of like Cliff, for me, just pretty much moves in a straight line. He's not suffering from starting at a new school. There's not too many awkward moments outside of finding a place to sit in the classroom in the beginning. He's not dealing with really issues or suffering from the dysfunction of living with this family dynamic in a hotel. Uh, He seems okay with that for the most part. He just seems okay for the most part in general, outside of his incessant yearning to know more about Ricky, following Ricky around. I want this guy as my bodyguard, but now I just need to know who this dude is. So he keeps following around. So is this movie about Cliff or is it really about Ricky coming to terms and with and facing his trauma and having had a hand in his little brother's death? But that was that's just a complaint for me. I, I needed to see kind of Clifford go from A to Z and it's kind of like he was already at Z like he I didn't know the bully situation didn't seem as large of an obstacle for him to overcome as it seemed that Ricky really had like this internal obstacle to overcome and that took over the focus of the movie I didn't know what Clifford was really learning or meant to learn in this movie because he does have the mental fortitude to take on the bullies he's just not physical enough to take on right. bullies. Yeah, that's why he needs Ricky. Sure. Yeah. He just doesn't have the physical presence to take care of himself, and that's where he's got to get Linderman. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in a way that kind of leads to my complaint, and we, you know, I mean, I touched on this at the beginning, because you basically almost have two movies in this movie that are kind of twisted together. Like, you really could just do a movie about the grandma Clifford and his dad at the hotel. Mm-hmm. That could have been a story itself, and just the grandma just does all these wacky things and they're just trying to keep her out of trouble. And then just the whole thing with the school, the movie itself, a movie could be my bodyguard and just all the things that happen in the school and hiring the bodyguard, the hotel. Right. Uh, all I kept thinking was, Oh, this could be a TV show that would last maybe three seasons before it got canceled. Maybe two, no more yeah. than three. Cause it was get old, but yeah, you really don't need it. But for the most part, like I said, I like just because it was Ruth Gordon and, and Martin Mull. I just found their dynamic kind of funny because it's sure he's trying to manage a hotel and the most difficult person in the hotel is his mom because she's either hitting on guests or just causing havoc, which is kind of funny because there was at one point and you said this at the beginning about the pump room and like, Oh, we look for her in the pump room. I'm, I'm literally thinking she was somewhere in the basement of the hotel. In the pump sure. room. Yeah. Yeah, that confused right. me. And then I'm glad you cleared that up earlier on. I was like, oh, the pump room's the bar. Got it. Yeah. What I would have liked to have seen is we are presented with some solid, like I said, building block. The foundation for me is definitely there. It's this interesting situation with Clifford and his family dynamic living in the hotel. And then you have Ricky, who's from what we're led to believe is the wrong side of the tracks from 
seedier part of downtown Chicago, the city. And they come from different worlds, Clifford and Ricky, and then they come together to forge this friendship in order to help one another achieve their goals. And they form a bond through doing so. And we learn more about them and they kind of go on this journey together in some sort of self-discovery and growing up. And unfortunately, we don't get that fully fleshed out really because there's not it's just kind of some quirky stuff going on with the family at the hotel. And then on Ricky's side, we know that his dad watches TV all the time. We barely get to see where he lives. It's like very short-lived. And that we don't, I guess, that I don't know if that's supposed to be his mom. That's his mom. Clifford talks to. And that's it. That That's all we get. Otherwise, Ricky's just kind of wandering around the city most of the time. That's a little bit nebulous. Back to Cliff's side of things. We understand that his mother was killed in a car accident two years previous. So that's something he must be dealing with. So the building blocks are there for like a lot of the substance and the layers and levels of these characters then that would come together and they are bringing a lot of baggage to their situations. And then now they're in a position to help one another. And I think that could be a lot more interesting than it was kind of portrayed here. But then again... Maybe that's a completely different movie then, you know? Right. Yeah, because you didn't have the classic Clifford looks at a picture of his mom, which is she was still here. We never understand mm-hmm. why Clifford went from the private school to the public school. Thank you. I meant to mention that earlier. That's just, there's no new school jitters. He's just at a new school and he's adjusting. Yeah. And I think. Like, how did that all come to be? What surprised me was actually Clifford going to Linderman's house. Because I really thought at this point where we found out that Linderman was just living on the streets. Mm-hmm. And then just when he met his dad with the TV, it's like, yeah, this was like three years ago when he last saw him. So I was kind of surprised that he, I didn't realize he would have a home home. Right. All right. So with all that. So deep, go ahead. <laughs> go, go. What's your next complaint? Yeah. So with all this deep talk about story and stuff like that, just very shallow. But this just made me laugh. So in the very beginning, when we see Clifford riding around the bike. There's that one shot where he looks over and he waves at someone like he knows who they are. I just laugh. Right. I'm like, dude, there's nobody there. Who the fuck are you waving to? That's so it's so weird. I don't know. It just it just made me laugh. I'm like, he doesn't know that person. I don't know who the hell he's waving to. I, Wait, I, okay. Which mo- at what point did that happen? Because I'm I'm thinking of there's during one- the opening credits when he's just riding his bike oh, back to the okay. hotel. And he's yeah. he's kind of going up the street, and he just kind of looks over, and then he just puts his hand up and waves, and right. then the, the camera <laughs> keeps true. falling him up. Yeah. The, you don't even see someone there. You don't even know who the hell he's waving to. I'm that, like, I you know, the, the director thing, just like, said like, wait, just, "Hey, just wave, just wave like you know someone." It's you're man about town. You literally know everybody right. that lives in the whatever square block radius around the Ambassador mm-hmm. East Hotel. <laughs> I don't know. Just maybe. That's funny. I did notice that. Like, who the hell? Who's he waving to? Mm -hmm. All right. I just thought it was funny. You know, this whole, the kind of one, I guess, is the iconic motorcycle riding sequence where now Ricky and Clifford have bonded and they've become friends. And now they're on Ricky's all fixed up bike and riding around downtown Chicago, et cetera. It's a fun sequence. I was like, Oh, this is very romantic. It's kind of like Paul Newman and Catherine Ross and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Just oh, riding that's a nice one. I like that. <laughs> so I don't, that's that a just good popped into my head. Like right in the middle of the movie, this is yep. the transition. Raindrops you know, keep falling on my head. <laughs> there you go. 
It's great, man. Uh, this movie has some really strange old school transitions with the dissolves and wipes. I'm like, am I watching Star Wars A New Hope? Or is this coming off the seventies? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's great. Uh, it's like, but it was like, this is in like, yeah, it's very seventies like gritty. Uh huh. You could not pay me to go to that school. No, no. I was like, holy crap. That's what that school looks like in 1979 when they shot it. I can only imagine what it looks like right now if it still even exists. That school was run down. Yeah, it looked a little rough around the edges. At one point, I was like, oh, the poor custodial staff. Man, they've got a lot of cleaning up to do. I think it was like during the chase sequence after Cliff stands up to Moody in the bathroom and runs off. There's like trash all over the floor and everything. everywhere. Oh, I'm like, it's like a back alley. Yeah, it's pretty gritty. Yeah, I had some more story stuff here. I mean, I, I, there's a little bit of a quick transition with Ricky going from kind of like looking like this wild child from as like this grease monkey who lives somewhere on the street and comes from a dysfunctional home. And then all of a sudden he's kind of cleaned up and almost clean cut and hanging out on the penthouse, like house balcony with Cliff. Oh yeah. He had the sweater and all that. He just has the sweater shirts tucked in wearing like khakis or something. His hair's cut and and quaffed. What happened? He's all clean. He took a shower now. Like what happened? That was the friendship just kind of, it was a little, it was a little bit much. And when we go to then the scene with another, hey, it's that actor. It's freaking John Houseman is in this movie as the hotel chief of operations. And he's with Clifford's grandmother and father. And I'm like, there's that scene where the grandmother is basically literally uh, sweeping Houseman off his feet, like dancing with him. And he's having some heart palpitations of some kind or whatever, but he's taking a break. And I'm like, wait, wait, where are we going with this at this point? What happened to the central story of the bullying and everything? We kind of got away from that. And I get that we've developed now this friendship between Cliff and Ricky. And most likely the bully aspect will make a return in the story. But I looked at the time and I'm like, we've only got a half an hour left in this movie. I was like, this is getting a little off track with the hotel stuff. Because that was the whole assistant hotel manager, Mr. Griffith, was bringing in the hotel chief of operations to hopefully show him that... Mr. Peach wasn't doing a good job as the hotel manager in order to get him fired. But it, it backfired on Mr. Griffith instead, and Mr. Peach fires Mr. Griffith. And I was like, I don't care about this stuff. We're, we need to get back to the bully stuff. Yeah, I didn't remember any of this. Yeah. And it's half the movie. Weird. Mm-hmm. Quick complaint. There's some gay slurs in this movie. No bueno. Oh, yeah. can take those out yep. or do without those. It was funny. One of my complaints was going to be, am I really supposed to believe that Moody and Linderman are sophomores because they're so much bigger than everyone else? And yeah. then I dropped my son off to school this morning and he goes up to one of his classmates and I shit you not. He's literally a head bigger than his classmate. So I'm like, oh, OK, I guess my my son could be Linderman. I don't know. He's <laughs> that, he was that much taller. I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, yeah, I guess it's possible. That's a great. I said, cross that one out. Story. Uh, Yeah. You know, I thought of the same thing, of course, but there were and are some kids like that. Yeah. They have the growth spurt early. They just look a bit more mature to get a little bit more of that peach fuzz facial hair kind of coming in. It's It's not, it's not grease too bad. (laughs) 
They're not like 40 year olds, but yeah, (laughs) they all seem like kids, just not in the right grades. Yeah. Uh, Here's my final complaint. I I was torn. I didn't know whether to put this in my additional thoughts and questions, because this is a question for you, Bill Bant, and maybe I missed this, but do they ever explain the scar on Linderman's wrist? No. That's a complaint. I'm glad you brought it up. That is a major complaint of mine. Because I think that's really important for his character. Because are we to assume that he may have attempted suicide by cutting his wrists as a result of what had happened with his little brother? Or am I misreading this? No, I agree with you. Because I would have thought that the grandmother saw it when she was reading his palm. And that's when she says something. I can't remember what the line she uses. Oh, something like we're all family here. Let me see your hand. Right. And then maybe he gets him to relax. Yeah. After she sees the scar. Yeah. Yeah. Because at this point, she's been a goofball the whole time. And then maybe she says something to him that kind of helps him out. And it doesn't, there's no payoff. I thought for sure she was going to have some words of wisdom to Linderman about maybe something the fact that she's something similar like that happened to her at one point in her life or something that was really going to help Linderman connect more with Clifford Mm -hmm. and it didn't happen. You bring up a a good point that I I was going to raise here is that what's missing for me in this movie too is mentorship. I I thought that might come into play with Clifford's father because his father felt as though he was being kind of this absentee dad because he was working so much that Clifford eventually would go to his dad with this bullying issue maybe and his dad would have some words of wisdom or like you just said, the grandmother may have played kind of a mentor role in setting an example how to, and I think they were kind of leaning that way in the way she lives her life. There's an interesting line that Cliff has about his grandmother saying, I don't think she's afraid of getting old. I think she's afraid of not living. And I thought like, it's, I'm paraphrasing, but that's a long, right, yeah. something along those lines. And it, it, it's a great line. But that would have been a good place for the grandmother to serve as a, again, just giving some words of wisdom, the old sage wisdom to Linderman when they're at the table and she sees the scar on his wrist. And I think in a way they subtly do that where, like you said, she's like, we're all friends here. We're all friends here or something like that. But I thought they were going to bring that back in the monologue that I had in my third favorite scene with Ricky Linderman bearing the truth to Clifford by, you know, saying that right, he tried to after up. what happened to my brother, I lied to everyone and then I, I tried to kill myself. But that's how dark it got for him. But that he does not say that. Nope. The scar on his wrist is never addressed again. Yeah. All right. Yeah, let's move on. So it's, hey, it's that actor. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. And there are so many, so many people to choose from this movie. I'm so nervous that we're going to match because (laughs) there's at least 10 people. Well, like I said, there might be more than that because there's a lot of people. It's their first movie or there's just so many cameos of people who are like, holy crap, such and such is in this? I never knew. So I'm really nervous to see who you have. Yeah, and man. If, well, if we match, like, I'm just going to have to make one up on the fly because I, I, we can't have a match. 
I've got a backup in case uh, we have the same one, but uh, I will then break the ice here, okay. I suppose. My Hey, It's That actor is Dean Devlin. Oh, yes. Okay, we're good. We're good. All right. I couldn't find him. <sighs> I couldn't either. That's why I was going to... Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm going to admit. So, Dean Devlin is credited as playing the character of Boy. I'm thinking that was the one that was either. trying to hit the, the rocks. By Linderman's house. But you can't really see him. But he, it would seem like he would be that age. Remember who I'm talking about? He was trying to hit the rocks? Yeah. Something we used to do as kids. He was. He had the stick and it was kind of the alleyway between Linderman's house and the house over. And there's a kid stand there. Oh, okay. And he keeps like trying to hit rocks to uh, God knows where. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I didn't him. know if that was him or if he was like one of Moody's guys, but Moody's guys have, I think, credits on IMDb. Right. They all have names. They have names. But anyway, uh, I just chose Dean Devlin because I saw his name in the credits and I actually Googled, I, I said, who is Dean Devlin in My Bodyguard? And there's a photo of him with... Adam Baldwin on location, but I still couldn't. I was like, I don't know who he is in the movie. I don't reckon it's not clear enough. Uh, according to IMDb, he's in this movie. And Dean Devlin did do some more acting after this, but mostly limited smaller roles. But he's most notably known as a big time producer. Dean Devlin has produced and co-written some of the most successful feature films of all time, Independence Day, Stargate, and Godzilla, which collectively grossed more than $1.4 billion worldwide. Dean Devlin is also the producer uh, of The Patriot and Geostorm. Back in May of 2001, he founded Electric Entertainment, where he serves as the chairman and CEO. And Devlin executive produced five seasons of the action-packed TNT series Leverage. And three uh, The Librarian movies of the week for TNT, starring Noah Wiley, which led to four seasons of The Library's series starring Wiley. What else? Lastly, I said I'd circle back to him because, lo and behold, Dean Devlin's father is Don Devlin, who produced this movie and was a writer-producer himself from 1960 to 1990. There you go. Dean Devlin has a bit part in this movie somewhere. Please let us know. Let us know who Dean Devlin is in this movie, so we can spot him. See, I should have known you were going to pick him, since you guys do have a connection. Since you were... You, you're probably easier to find in Independence Day than he's easier to find in my <laughs> bodyguard. <laughs> very funny. It's very funny. Hey, look. Here, okay, long story short, I was an extra in Independence Day. It was one of my first acting gigs when I moved to Los Angeles. It was a really great experience. I told everybody I was in the movie, and then in the final cut, you can't see me at all. And that was a running joke. Still is, apparently. And <laughs> I still swear to this day, on the big screen, the widescreen version, you can see the tip of my shoe at one point. Thank you very much. When they come out this the like the 16K supervision, <laughs> super version with additional footage, that's when we'll finally get to see you. Yeah, the, the director's final... Final cut. Right. I'm in the one of the deleted scenes. From the vault. Uh, Your big scene with the VP. 
Is that yeah. the scene? That, that, yeah. Okay. See, I remember that. I was a, yes, I was one of the presidential secret service. I was a secret service agent. I was like the smallest secret service agent or presidential. Agent. Like I, I was in a suit with a presidential pin and an earpiece in the hospital scene where the first lady passes away and Bill Pullman as the president comes out into the hall and is consoling his daughter. And I'm down the hallway. It will be unearthed at some point. Don't don't bother looking it up, ladies and gentlemen. Not that you would, because you won't see, you won't see me. All right. Well, I'm glad we don't match this. So my handset actor is George Went, who plays the hotel engineer. Yeah, man. Got to got to get that AC working. So this was uh, George Went's first credited film role. He would go on in the '80s to have small film roles in such movies as Jekyll and Hyde, Together Again, Airplane Two. Dreamscape, No Small Affair, Gung Ho, and Fletch. But most people know him as the lovable Norm Peterson in the hit NBC comedy Cheers. Norm! Who I think has one of the best lines in television history. It's a dog-eat-dog world. I'm wearing milk bone underwear. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, that line is awesome. So George Went starred in... 270 episodes of the show it was nominated six times for outstanding actor in a comedy series so george went was my hey it's that actor and we could probably go we could probably literally do a whole show on hey it's that actor for this movie that is just worth watching it alone just to see everyone that's into this movie i totally agree all right so let's move on to facts and trivia what are some facts and trivia we have about my bodyguard well speaking of which people in this movie this was the feature film debut of adam baldwin joan cusack dean devlin and paul quant but someone whom i i don't know if we mentioned her yet but the one and only jennifer beals yes is in this movie she's uncredited but there's a nice just close-up of her face in this movie. Well, she's in the background a couple times, but there is a close-up on her, and you're like, well, that's Jennifer Beals. All right, a very young Jennifer Beals. So this was supposedly her feature film debut yeah. as well. So the biology teacher, who was played by Patrick Billingsley, who has no relationship to Peter's Billingsley, so this is interesting about him. So he was a mathematician, whose research was mainly devoted to probability theory. His book entitled Probability and Measure is considered as a classic reference in probability. In 1958, he became a professor of mathematics and statistics at the University of Chicago and retired in 1994. Wait, who is this? <laughs> the, the biology professor who comes up to... Really? Who comes yeah, up? Yeah, yeah. He comes yeah. up to Cliff Carson, and is like, yeah. "Oh, you obviously know what you're doing." Yep. Yeah. Wow. It's real deal, huh? I had to do some serious digging to find some stuff on this movie. There's not much out there. That's awesome, though, man. That's a good pull. Thank you. Hey, Adam Baldwin, who plays the reluctant hero Ricky Linderman, has a brief cameo in another movie, Drillbit Taylor from 2008, which is a comedic version of the whole bodyguard genre. He is seen wearing the exact same outfit from. The original classic movie and scolds the boys who are interviewing him with a completely ironic line kids hiring a bodyguard to take care of a bully stupidest thing i ever heard that's the only part of the movie i remember i've never seen it oh, okay drill bit taylor yeah owen wilson right 
Oh, one of the okay. I think it's one yes. of the Wilsons. I think you're right. Yeah. Now it's coming back. Like I said, digging deep for facts and trivia here. So the excerpt yeah. read by Clifford's high school English teacher, Mrs. Clarice Jump, who we've mentioned a couple of times, is from Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. This I found surprising. She's married to Mandy Patinkin from Princess Bride oh, wow. in Chicago Hope. Yeah, they've been married since 1980. No kidding. Yeah. Good for them. Holy yeah. cow. There you go. There's a power couple for you. That's what, 42 years? Yeah. Very good. Mm-hmm. Tale of Two Cities. I was wondering what that was from, what she was reading. Now you know. So this film was named as one of the top 10 films of 1980 by National Board of Review. It was also nominated by the Writers Guild of America for Best Drama Written Directly for the Screen. And in his analysis of the 53rd Academy Awards, Gary Arnold of the Washington Post wrote that My Bodyguard was unfairly snubbed when it failed to receive an Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Got that off of Wikipedia, I believe. All right. uh, So we mentioned that, Joan. (laughs) I don't know what to say. I don't know. Uh, We love in agreement with that, but yeah, nice seeing you. Hey, everybody's in tub. I don't know. So Joan Cusack wasn't the only Cusack in this movie. Joan ah, Cusack's dad, yes. Dick Cusack, played Principal Roth in the movie. Unfortunately, the two of them don't share any screen time together. Yeah, the Cusack family. You have anything else, sir? I was just going to say. Uh, also, according to Wikipedia, the film ranked number 45 on Entertainment Weekly's list of the 50 best high school movies. Yeah, it should be in there. This is a beloved film, you know? It is. All right, so my last one is uh, John Houseman, who makes a brief appearance as Dobbs in the movie, won a Best Supporting Oscar for his role as Charles W. Kingsfield Jr. in The Paper Chase, which also starred Craig Richard Nelson, who played Griffith. Aha! little connection there. All right, so let us move on to box office. My Bodyguard was released on July 11th, 1980 on 39 screens. On an estimated budget of $3 million, it grossed $22.5 million domestically. The film opened in limited release in July, but it earned the number three spot behind a little movie called uh, Empire Strikes Back. Uh, It went in wide release 12 weeks later on September 26, 1980 in 477 theaters. It was the number two movie at the box office behind In God We Trust, starring Marty Feldman and Richard Pryor. My Bodyguard was the 23rd highest grossing movie domestically in the United States in 1980. Uh, Moving on to reviews, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel did not review this movie for their show sneak previews. Roger did, however, give the movie three and a half out of four stars in his review for the Chicago Sun-Times, stating, My Bodyguard is a small treasure. A movie about believable characters in an unusual situation. It doesn't pretend to be absolutely realistic, and the dynamics of its big city high school are simplified for the purposes of the story. But this movie is fun to watch because it touches memories that are shared by most of us, and because its young characters are recognizable individuals and not simplified cartoon figures like so many movie teenagers. Rotten Tomatoes gives a tomato meter score of 79%, and it has an IMDb rating of 7.1. So that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about My Bodyguard? 
Hey, Bill Bant, would you be okay living in a hotel for an extended period of time? Wow, Jason, that's the same first question that I wrote. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I said, would you like to grow up in a five-star hotel? You know, it seemed kind of fascinating because I think what I liked that because of Clifford's disposition, everyone that worked there really seemed to like him and get along with him. And because Clifford didn't come off as a spoiled brat, I think they actually enjoyed being around in his company. Right. But yeah, it's definitely got to be kind of weird. But it'd be kind of neat to, you know, you eat in the back of the kitchen, you see everything that's getting made. It would be weird having a room when you're decorating that it's a hotel and try to make it feel like your own because it never would. Because I was trying to think, like, what amenities are they missing? Because I guess they don't technically have a kitchen, maybe. So they'd always have to get like, their food from downstairs. Right, 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 right. No laundry. So there's got to be some weird stuff, how that all works out. Yeah. But they do yeah. have that kick-ass balcony. See, that's the thing. It, I think especially like nowadays, it would feel like if you were living in a, like a penthouse suite of that size, those rooms today now do have kitchenettes in them. Right. And it would just feel as though you were in an apartment complex. I mean, a lot more people are coming and going. There's probably a lot more of that kind of transitory movement or action with the people and but you would just mentally you just have to be like oh this i have to pretend this is like a, a an apartment situation but i think if it were if you were staying at a like two-star hotel that'd be much different oh yeah for a long time and they do you know un you know people are in situations where they have to do that they have monthly rates and stuff like that at extended hotel uh, extended stay hotels yeah, same kind of situation in Last Starfighter because Alex's mom ran the mobile park and Alex kind of had to sure. work there. Mm -hmm. Or is this at least a five-star hotel? So I think, yeah, it just depends on the circumstances. It could be very strange and awkward. And then also it's growing up there versus just now in the middle of your life going to stay at a hotel for an extended period of time, like a year or something like that is different. I think if you had grown up in that situation, you obviously would have become more accustomed to it, that lifestyle versus, you know, not doing it at this point in your life. Yeah, I think I could have handled it. It's just coming from, I, I, I definitely could. I've always loved staying in hotels. I don't care how, for how long. I, I'm just kind of easier going when it comes to that sort of situation. I'll adjust accordingly. You just do what you got to do. But I think it's just a mental thing. We're just like, oh, I, this doesn't feel like my place. I still feel like I'm in some sort of corporate situation i don't know mm -hmm. you just have to get over the mental aspect i think right because it's really not that different from living in an apartment complex i would think true all right deep deep question here jason going deep i'll give you time to think about your answer so do you think uh mr peach and the flight attendant there were uh, knocking boots something going on there <laughs> wow that was really subtle wasn't it in the movie yeah my goodness i was like ah good for him gotta get back on your feet why not? Yeah, now I don't feel so bad. Like he, earlier when he's stealing the, the, getting the telescope out of his son's hands, like, no, I need this more. I'm older. I gotta, I need to get my kicks by staring at the, the naked ladies in the buildings across the way. No, he's doing pretty good for himself. Yeah, I think Mr. so. Mr. Peach is hooking up with the flight attendant coming and going from the hotel, you know? Yeah. Uh, that was pretty funny. It's like, oh, all right. Hey. Martin Mould. Yeah. Mr. Peach. He's doing okay. People got needs. Oh, heck yeah. I mean, hey, nothing wrong with it. Nope. Good for you, buddy. Good looking woman.
Very deep question. Thanks for that. Yeah, no problem. All right, here we go. Do you have a favorite or best inner city school movie? Ooh. I'm just going to throw these out here. And I, I did not do a lot of a deep dive on this or look up the lists online. Mm-hmm. But here's just uh, for uh, The Principal, Dangerous Minds, Stand and Deliver, The Substitute, just to name a few. Those are all fun. I think the first one popped in my head was Stand and Deliver before yeah. you gave the list. Yeah, hopefully all those will cover at some point. I like them all. Yeah. Uh, the Principal is pretty tough. That's a that's a rough one. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, That one I used to watch a ton. It used to be on a lot, and I would watch all the time. You know, James Belushi. Yeah. A little baseball bad action in that one. Louis Gossett. Yeah. All right. Good stuff. Hey, man, were you ever bullied, Bill Bant? I did have kind of a flashback going back watching this during the basketball scene because yeah. we had a bully in our high school. That was my that was my follow-up question. Right. Yeah. Was there that one main bully in school? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he was in my gym class. And we were playing basketball, uh-huh. and he was a so-so basketball player. And I would say it was above, I was above average, and he went to go shoot, and I blocked a shot, and he did the same thing, threw an elbow right in my stomach. Oof. Yeah. Yep. But that was it. Nothing else happened after that. Cheap shot. If he came at me, I was, I was still trying to block his, his stuff. That was the only incident I ever had with him. But yeah, he, he was, yeah, we had that bully. Sure. I don't know if I'll throw. Yeah, you know, I want to throw out his name. Sound like he's going to listen to the show. Eccles. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah, he was getting a lot of fights. Yeah, yeah. There's always those guys and girls too. Girls can be bullies as well, of course. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, there was bullies in my school. Uh, you know, luckily I personally wasn't bullied a great. Deal. If anything, it was very brief, kind of like a situation like you had, but not even physical. It was just like some taunting. Right. Really here and there. Just a little intimidation, verbal intimidation. You get the typical, like that verbal hazing when you're a freshman to always by the senior oh, class yeah. members. There's just some jerks, you know, that just throw, what are you looking at, freshman? Just crap like that. Or the looks and the stares and the snickering, making fun of the way you dress, just stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but then there were those that were, a little, yeah, kind of a little rougher around the edges that. I just tended to avoid, but I was lucky, definitely. Yeah, luckily, yeah, like I was like saying, I don't really, I didn't really have a major incident in, in high school. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there were certainly some kids that got picked on a lot. No, I don't think anything to the extent you ever see in movies, thank goodness. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. There, I, I did encounter a bully at one point in my life when I must have been between the ages of 8 and 11 in that range, but I was great friends with a neighbor of mine. And my neighbor childhood friend, he had, I think, a relative that would come to visit him from time to time. And I happened to be hanging out there, and this particular relative was a outright bully. And he would punch me in the stomach. And uh, so I kind of did not look forward to the whenever that kid would show up on the scene mm-hmm. or be visiting my, my friend. And uh, I got him in trouble at one point. Got yeah, him in trouble too. with his dad. And then uh, kind of saw why, or probably one of the reasons why this kid was a bully. Mm-hmm. Probably stemmed from his dad, actually. But uh, I can't say for sure, of course. Bullying is a real thing. Oh, it's yeah. Bummer. bummer that exists. And as much as they try to stop it, it's still out there. Yeah. Um, did you have any more thoughts or questions? I just had one left. No, I'm good. Yeah, I, here's my last question. But uh, what does the remake look like today? 
would it, and you kind of touched on this because I was going back and forth between is it a movie or is it a miniseries or extended series on television? No, it's a movie, and you just focus on the school stuff. You get rid of the whole hotel story, and he just normal home, but it's the new kid at the new school, and he says the wrong thing to the wrong kid, and basically got to dig himself out of this hole and befriend someone to become his bodyguard. Just keep it simple. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And then they, yeah, they, yeah, like I said, you know, they yeah, because you mentioned earlier the yeah, the they kind of come from different worlds, and they have to, and they they discover that they each have their own individual trauma, whatever that might be. Maybe they bond over that mm-hmm. and then ultimately, hopefully, uh, find some peace. Right. Yeah. There's nothing super original. All right. Cool. There you go. Those are my questions and thoughts. Let's move on to our rating. So, Jason, on a scale of one to five bullies, what do you give my bodyguard? All right. Well, I give this three strong bullies. It has the makings of a great drama D, and I say drama D, meaning there is comedy in this, and uh, it deserves to have some comic relief and lightheartedness, but it has, like I said, building blocks, foundation, but it doesn't quite get there. I appreciate seeing the young stars in this movie and some decent performances, but much of the story isn't totally fulfilling. Make no mistake, I love to see the bullies get their comeuppance as much as the next guy, and we do get to see that at least. But I wish they had done more in developing some of the B story and or C story, the other storylines in this, and um, maybe even Clifford's family backstory. But hey, I'm glad I watched it. I sort of wished I had seen this as a kid. You made this point earlier, Bill, uh, or you doubled down on a point I had made. I forget. But yeah, I think if I had seen this as a kid, it definitely would have left its mark and I would have had some real nostalgic attachment to this. So I'm sorry I missed out as, on this as a kid. But for me today as an adult, it did leave a lot on the table. Still enjoyable, but yeah, just okay for me. Three bullies. I'm right there with you. Three bullies on this. I think mainly because it is two movies in one. And the movie I want to see is Clifford at the school trying to deal with this bully and making this friendship with the supposed supposed bully and how that all works out. Like I said, I didn't have a problem with the hotel stuff just because you know you had Martin Mull and, and Ruth Gordon, but you didn't need it. They could just do their own television series, and that's fine. <laughs> it was a lot of fun to watch. It really was. I, I, I did enjoy it. If you're someone who had seen it back in the early 80s and hadn't seen it in a long time, I would definitely say go back and watch it. It's 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 an easy watch, too. It's a short watch. I was surprised how short it was. Yeah. Also. Yeah. And then just all the cameos. The camera is just great. Um, That's a lot of fun. So, yeah, three bullies for me. Excellent. So I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. If you want to reach out, you can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, movies you want us to cover, or recipes to share. Follow us on Facebook, Meta, and All 80s Movies Podcast. Catch us on TikTok at All 80s Movies Podcast, or tweet us at Podcast All 80s. In our next episode, we will be discussing Conan the Barbarian, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, James Earl Jones, and Sandal Bergman. We hope you join us again. Have a totally great week, everyone. Yes, Conan the Barbarian. Anvil of Crom. Love it. Looking forward to that one. You got nerve, even if you're not going to live long. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world.